title for this morning's message, as you see in your bulletin there, is A Savior and a King, but who understood it, or who understands it? To give a little background to the situation, let us understand that since creation, since this world came into being, God has desired for man, who, by the way, was the pinnacle of his creation. It wasn't animals, it wasn't trees, but it was man that was the pinnacle who was made in the image and likeness of God. And with that, God has desired for man to walk with God, as we find Adam and Eve right in the garden, and to enjoy a relationship with him, and also to rule over his creation. And as we look around today in 2010, it's the same thing. Man desires to know God, man desires to walk with God, and we seek to rule in many areas, but that's been God's desire. As we know, sin entered in. Sin entered into the world, how? Through man's lust, through man's fall, through man's disobedience to God, resulting in man being cast out of the presence of God, number one, not able to enjoy that walk and relationship in the same capacity. And secondly, as we all experience, and certainly we did this summer with the heat in this area, we also experience that God's creation works against not only God but man. And it rebels and weeds come up and things die and, and so forth and so on. So that man has not only had that relationship with God hindered, but also we see that creation itself even resists the rule of man over it and causes problems. And I go back to all of that in relationship to our text, which might seem strange to you, because God had promised to redeem man. God had promised to restore even the creation that he had provided for man and restore man to rule over that creation in a right way. And by the way, eventually, in the final heaven and earth, man will reign with Christ and will rule over creation and things will be back in harmony. But that has been God's promise, and he promised to send a deliverer who would bring that about. And if we were to go back, that deliverer was called the Messiah. He was the anointed one of God that would come. And in the course of time, since man's, according to the book of Genesis, heart was deceitful and continually and constantly involved in sin. God wanted a people that would represent him. Those are called the Jews, the nation of Israel. And so he called out a people unto himself way back in the Old Testament. Started that through the promises he gave to Abraham. And promised them that it was through them. First of all, they were to be a witness to the world around them of their relationship to God. And then through them would come this Redeemer. Through them would come the promise of redemption and restoration through that nation. And thus, Israel was not only to represent him, but they would be looking for that one to come. And it started right away in the book of Genesis. They were to look for that Redeemer to come and to come through their line. And they were given some guidelines. Why? Because many, many false messiahs would come. 
many, many false Christs. And by the way, that is no different today. Even Jesus Christ said that in the last times, many false Christs, many false messiahs, many false people professing would come. So much so that when he returns, would he even find faith? That's a frightening statement in the light of our generation today. But that was a promise, and they had to look because a lot of self-proclaimed, and if you go out through history, and I won't do that with you this morning, it's rather fascinating to see throughout history, even to the nation of Israel, how many false messiahs have come along and professed themselves to be the Redeemer, to be the one that would deliver the nation of Israel to be the one sent from God. So how could they know? How could they identify this one that would come, this one that was promised, this one that the world should be looking for, but in particular, they should be looking for as Jews? Well, God gave them some information, and he told them what they should look for. For example, and I won't rehearse all of them, just a few that I know you're familiar with. They were told what family the Messiah would come through that he would have to come through a certain genealogy, David and Abraham, for example, so that they would be able to, first of all, eliminate many false prophets that did not come through that line. They were told that he would have to be born in a certain place, and we celebrate that every Christmas as we use that term. So they were not only to look for a certain line, but this person had to be born in a certain place, according to what God had said. Not only that, but not only a certain place, but a specific time. That's important to today's message. A very specific time he would have to be born in that area. They also were given some information. Because if people began to look like they were meeting this criteria, God was going to verify that Messiah, the true Messiah, because this one would be able to, first of all, fulfill the scriptures that are laid out and had been given to the people of God. Secondly, he would be able to perform miracles. Not just hocus-pocus things, but miracles that were undeniable, that were verified by God, so that as they looked at this individual and things were lining up, they could see also, yes, God's hand is on this as well. He's fulfilling scripture. Yes, the miracles are obvious. No one else could do this. It could only come from God. They were to be given these things. And as we come to what we know in our English Bible and today as the Gospels, the four accounts in our New Testament as we open up from the Old Testament, the writers in our New Testament go through Payne's efforts to try to show us the presentation and the evidence that Jesus Christ meets the qualifications and is the only Messiah, the one that God had promised that they should have been looking for since the Garden of Eden. And John in particular, where we are, as we've already seen, it is his whole purpose to let us see that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, why? So that by believing in him, believing what? That encompasses all the promises of God. That there would be a redeemer, that there would be a deliverer, that there would be a restorer. By believing in him, we might have life. Now, if we might have life, it's something that we don't have when we have life. 
what in the world did you just say, Pastor Dan? Well, we all have physical life, right? I'm looking out at an audience. Maybe some, do some pinching out there. Maybe some people don't. Only kidding. But we have life, okay? And so he's offering life to those who have physical life. It's got to be something different. So the believing on the Lord Jesus Christ has to do with spiritual. It has to do with also eternal life. It has to do with forgiveness of sins. It has to do with why he was cast out of the Garden of Eden in the first place because of disobedience and couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. So the leaders should have been looking for them. And yet, as we know today, Israel still has not accepted their Messiah. To this point, as we come to the Gospel accounts, the Messiah had not come. So they're still looking for the evidence. Where are we historically? Well, they had not accepted a Messiah yet. They had already gone through Babylonian captivity. They had already gone through, as a nation, Assyrian captivity. And you might be saying, why all this? Hold on when we deal with this triumphant entry. They had been through these captivities, and they were now, as a nation, under Roman rule. I really went forward. But they're now under Roman rule, and really, while they're given freedoms, they're slaves. They are subject to and can be shut down any time by the Roman powers. Their Messiah, as far as they're concerned, has not yet come, and Rome is ruling, and they're still looking for deliverance. The majority of them have not recognized or accepted the fact that Jesus Christ, as he has presented himself, as John the Baptist has identified, as his disciples are preaching and have identified, and others have now come to believe, the majority have not accepted that Jesus is the one that meets that criteria and is the one that is the one sent of God. Majority have not. But they are desperately looking for one to come. You need to understand why. They are looking primarily for deliverance and freedom in a military sense. They're under Rome. They're looking to get out underneath that bond. And a lot of people are still looking for that. Where are we? Jesus has come from God. We know the verse. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And by the way, you will hear me stick to this one. The best translation of that is unique. Not only and not one. Because you can look scripturally and see why that's not. It's unique because he is the only one that is fully man, fully God. There's a lot that were only one, but there's not one that was unique except for Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. And he sent him into the world. They haven't accepted him as the Messiah. Well, recently we saw in our text as we come to John chapter 12 that one of the miracles and one of the evidences was that he raised Lazarus from the death. Totally unheard of. One that we spent a lot of time on because he was dead for four days. He has now concluded his public ministry for all intents and purposes. There's a few things left. He had gone away from the people to be away because they wanted to make him king. Remember that. And he went away after that resurrection, and he had spent time up in Galilee and Samaria. We are now, though we are in just the middle of John's account, we are near the last week of his time before his crucifixion. That's where we are, historically. A dinner had been held in his place. That's last week's message. 
in the first part of John chapter 12. He arrived in Bethany, and they had honored him, specifically, in the, as we learn, in the house of Simon the leper. He had put on a dinner in his honor, that is, in the honor of Jesus Christ. And in that process, he was anointed, and this is where we left off in verses all the way to verse 8. He was anointed by Mary for the burial that he's about to take place, and uh, soon, I should say. And now what happens? Well, in that context is where we are now in John chapter 12. He has come and offered himself in many different ways as the Messiah. He has shown the evidence of it. The Jews should have been looking for it. They're anticipating a Messiah to come since the Garden of Eden and the promises to Abraham all the way back there. But now what? Now, as we come to our text this morning, Jesus, and there's a little difference here, will formerly or, if you will, officially offer himself and present himself to Israel as the Messiah. That's this text. He now comes in in a formal way and is presented as the true deliverer that God had promised. We know this as Palm Sunday. We know this as the triumphant entry I do want to say to you, by the way, personally, it's not much of a triumph. I don't know why it ever got that title, The Triumphant Entry. I shouldn't say that. I've done some reading on it with the title and whatever. But it really is not a triumphant entry because he's going to get rejected and he's going to be crucified very soon. But it raises a lot of questions. Questions. Did the people understand this? Since they were looking for it, were they ready for it? Will they crown him as king? Will they repent and turn back to God? Will the kingdom be restored so that creation itself? All of that should have been part of their questions because they're looking forward to the Messiah coming. Well, let's see. Let's take a look. It's interesting, by the way, this is a very important account because it's one of the few that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. There's some key events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. One is his birth. Another one is his crucifixion. Another one is his resurrection. But in between there is this one right here. And that is his formal presentation to the nation of Israel as the anointed one of God. Did they get it? Let's take a look. Let's look at the perspective of man. I want to give you all the information. It's very important. Because as we come to our text, you'll notice there's a large crowd there. And in verse 12 it says, on the next day. It is important that you understand that after that anointing in verse 8, something else took place. That very night, the night of the dinner, Judas Iscariot is going to, and don't miss this, I will amplify this later in John's book, but Judas Iscariot of his own lust, turn with me, and you, uh, first of all, you're in chapter 12, look at verses 4 to 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him. This is the lust of, Lutus, uh, of, of uh, Judas himself, number one. But secondly, he's going to be enticed by Satan. Look with me to chapter 13 of Luke. Chapter thir- I'm sorry, John. Chapter 13, verse 2. During the supper, and we'll deal with this when we get there, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. All right? Judas of his own lust and under the enticement, according to James, that's the way it all falls, under the enticement of Satan, what? 
he begins, before we get to verse 9, he begins to negotiate with the Jewish leaders the betrayal of Jesus. How do we know that? Turn with me to Matthew 26. Stay with me. Matthew 26. That's why you need to compare the accounts. Notice verse 15, uh, 14. Let me go to verse 14. Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for the opportunity to betray him. From then on, it took him a week to finally do it. Where is that couched in between? If you look at verses 6 through 13, what had happened? Last week's message. The preparation for his burial and his anointing. What else do you have? Look at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, now you've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we are going to get to in John's account. And what I'm help, trying to get you to see for the chronology, it's important, that some things have taken place. He's been anointed for the burial, and now he's going to move on that, and then the next day something's going to happen. But before the next day comes, during that same night, Judas Iscariot leaves him, and he now begins negotiations to betray him, to set the tone for the week. More on that later when we get to the betrayal and so forth. All right? So Judas is involved in that. What are the crowds involved in? Back to John chapter 12. The crowds are coming to see Jesus for two reasons. According to verses 9 to 11, and we didn't quite deal with all of that last week, but let me just give you this. According to verses 9 to 11, the crowds are coming to see Jesus and John. They heard about the resurrection, um, Jesus and Lazarus, I'm sorry. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They're coming to see what has gone on because they've heard of this tremendous miracle. But they're also coming for a second reason. Look down to verse 13 of chapter 12. They are coming for what? An event that's known as, I'm sorry, verse 12. They're coming for the feast, the Passover. So the Lord Jesus Christ has been in Bethany. He's been anointed. Judas goes to do his work, and the crowds are coming to see him and Lazarus, and they're also coming up because it's a big feast, and that's common to happen. So that's what's going on in our text. And actually, chronologically, verse 14 of John, stay with me, verse 14 happens before verses 12 and 13. Why? Because they're giving you the next day with the crowds coming, but what happened before that was verse 14. So let's look at there. In verse 14, first, it says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That happens, as I said before, verses 12 and 13. John just mentions it in passing. But the details are given to us in the other accounts. You read one of them for the responsive reading. Before Jesus actually comes in, he comes in on a donkey. And if you look at the text and compare them, and I won't go back and look at all of it, what happened in Matthew's account, he sends two disciples ahead of him. So on the next day before he actually arrives, he sends two disciples, and he says, you'll find there a donkey. And by the way, it was a donkey, and you notice in the responsive reading, and a colt. There's two animals, not one. Now, some people have had all kinds of issues as to why it's two animals, 
I don't know. Uh, possibly donkeys, by the way, a young donkey does not respond very well. You see cartoons on that as well. They like to sit down. They don't like to be pulled. And from a common perspective, what happens is sometimes when they bring an older animal, the young donkey will follow the older one. And that may be why there's two. I don't know. The text doesn't really tell us. Personally, I'll tell you this. That donkey was coming whether there was two of them or not because the creator was going to sit on it. And the one purpose for this donkey's life was that it could be the privileged donkey in which the Messiah would sit on and come to formally offer himself to the people. That was the purpose of this whole donkey. But whatever the case, it had never been sat on, according to the accounts in Mark and Luke. That's not even in Matthew. Why? This is the purpose of this whole donkey. Now, what is the donkey a symbol of? Well, there's been a number of things offered, but according to the scriptures, I'll give you this. One of them is peace. It says that in the text. It says that in the text that it's quoted from. And the other is humility. Some have said it's for poverty. And that's possibly true, but if you read some of the historians, that's also been shown to not necessarily be true. But the two th elements are peace and the humble approach. Think of it this way. Most kings did not come on a donkey. When they came in, there were big parades and so forth. And even in the days of Rome, they came in in stallions. They didn't come in in donkeys. And why is that significant? He's not coming in like all other kings. He is different. He's not even coming in like David came in or Solomon came in. Solomon had a lot of horses. All right? He would not have marched in on a donkey. That's not what they used to. Why did he come in on a donkey? Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. That's what is quoted. Now remember, the people are looking for the Messiah. The people are looking for the Messiah to come in. The people knew the scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, that's the actual passage that's fulfilled. Watch. I want you to remember these things. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. In our text, that's what they are doing. Now watch. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now watch this. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, there's the humility, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was another means of them identifying who the Messiah truly was. They should have seen it. And what have you got? Back in John chapter 12, in verses 12 and 13 now, since he's coming in on that donkey, you have a large crowd. How large? It's been interesting to read that. Now, some people feel Josephus, who is a historian, a Jewish historian, exaggerates a lot. But conservatively, when you look back on some of the writings that are available to us today, this would have potentially, because of those that were coming to hear about the resurrection of Lazarus and those for the feast, they are estimating somewhere in the vicinity of one million people surrounding Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big crowd today. It is. Some of you are going to go home and watch football games or whatever. That's, only, that's small. What, 30,000, 35,000? It's 
big to me, but not in relationship to this. You need to see the perspective. And they're shouting out. A lot of them come. One thing is for sure. In our text as we read it, it says they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We notice that he's stopped in a village and the donkey has been provided for him. He's coming from Bethany. By the way, it's near the Mount of Olives, as you saw in the text that we read for responsive reading. And they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Praise the Lord, they've got it. Right? Hold on. Enthusiastic? Absolutely. Shouting with excitement? Yes. Quoting scripture? Yes. They're quoting part of Zechariah. Well, in their case, they're actually Zechariah gets quoted in verse 15. They're quoting from Psalm 118. And I'll go there in a second. And in Psalm 118, they're saying, Hosanna, let's go there. 118. Psalm 118. I want you to keep your finger here for a moment in Psalm 118. I want you to see why. This is vital. You may be sitting there saying, I don't make the connection yet. Well, hold on. Psalm 118, look down to verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's where they're quoting from when they say, Hosanna. Hosanna, by the way, as many know, just means help, I pray, or save, I pray. Or it could be translated, save now. I want you to notice something else. This is the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ accepts this. Many other times, people tried to make him king, and they shouted out, and he turned them away. Now, time doesn't allow it, but I'll give you the reference. Luke 19, verses 39 and 40, make it very clear in this instance that the Jewish leaders who are looking for the Messiah come to him and say, tell the children to stop saying that. Tell the people to stop calling you the one that is to bless Israel. You know what Jesus responds on this occasion? He says, I tell you, if I tell them to shut up, the rocks will start shouting. The rocks will speak up and identify who it is to you that's coming in. But did they get it? The answer very simply is no. You say, Pastor Dan, I don't see it. They got it. They were shouting, save now. They were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got it. No, they didn't. They were looking for salvation from Rome. How do I know that? Stay with me. They were looking for salvation in the sense of not their souls, but deliverance from the power of Rome. They were looking for freedom. They were looking for anything that they could get from Jesus except the salvation of their souls. How do we know that? Well, let me tell you some things. Number one, in just a few days, what's the crowd going to call out? Crucify him. You don't call crucify to the one that you think is saving your soul. They will call out crucify him. 
Secondly, look at the text in John chapter 12. Even the disciples didn't get it. How do we know? Verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first. When did they get it? But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had, they had done these things to him. They didn't get it. Next, I want you to notice that Jesus says they didn't get it. How do we know? Turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19. You see, if you don't compare the accounts and you go here, you say, the people were shouting for the right type of salvation. Really? Look at Luke 19. Now, I want you to notice this. I said, uh, I already referred back to the text. Notice in verse 38. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. There's the, there's why I said the scriptures say the reason for the donkey is both peace and humility. That's what's in scripture. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke them. That's when he says the stones are cried out. What's the very next verse say? Watch, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, watch these next few words, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's the scripture saying that. They were shouting with excitement. They were rejoicing in the streets. They were quoting scripture and they missed the boat. All they saw was a military deliverance. And as he walks into the city... He cries over them. It's also recorded in Matthew 23. You can look at it in your own. He says, how many times have I been trying to gather you in and you would not take it? That's important to see. They not only didn't get it because, you see, the disciples didn't get it. They would crucify him in a couple of days. But Jesus himself says they didn't get it. And further, I will give you this. They quoted Psalm 118. I said keep your finger there. I don't know if you did, but I'll give you this. In Psalm 118, it's interesting. They, they shout for him that comes in the name of the Lord. You know what they didn't shout? Verses 20 to 25. Listen to this. Because in the same context, I shall give you thanks for you, uh, for you have answered me. You have become personal. My salvation the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ will have that quoted in the epistles. And the stone of what? The chief cornerstone, the stone of offense. The Lord, the Lord is doing marvelous things in your eyes. And by the way, we sing this all the time. This is the context of it. 
This is the day which the Lord hath made. What does the rest of it say? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's in the triumphant entry that that is the quote for. This is the day they should have been rejoicing in. And it goes on to say, the Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the, the festival sacrifice with cords. You are my God. They were to see that the one entering in wasn't just a king to deliver them from a nation. He was the one providing salvation, and all they saw was deliverance. And their concept of salvation was salvation from Rome, not salvation for their souls. I couldn't help when I was studying this to be reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul warns, if someone comes and preaches, listen, another Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, but not the Jesus you have learned. These people were looking for a deliverer, but they weren't looking for Jesus Christ who was coming to die for their sins. There are those who are looking for Jesus Christ simply to give them something. That's not true salvation. I do have forgiveness of sins. I do have eternal life. But some are looking for just a prosperous life, a Jesus that they make up, and not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And that's what Israel was faced with with this triumphant entry. They didn't get it. They love Jesus for what they can get. They're always looking for good things to happen, for God to provide for them, and he does. Are they looking for a God that's just love? And he is. But God was providing more for that than that. In this context, the provision of God was this was the one true Messiah who was coming. I want you to get this, every one of you. Who was coming to Israel to die. That's why he was coming. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Go with me to Mark 10. Go with me to Mark 10. They didn't want to see this king come in to die. They wanted him to deliver them. What? From oppression. There are so many that just want the superficial things they can get from God or from Christ. True salvation leads to total repentance and brokenness of the hearts. In Matthew chapter 10, I want you to notice verses 32 to 34. I'm sorry, Mark, thank you for that. Mark chapter 10. Verses 32 to 34. And you'll notice, you can look at it on your own, about the context and so forth. I mentioned about the rich young ruler last week. Two days before the event that we're reading, notice what the Lord said to his disciples. They were on the road going where? Up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This is before he gets on the donkey. And they were amazed at those who followed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, notice this, and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Where is he going? To Jerusalem. Watch, verse 33. Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. 
That's what it says. And if you look to Mark 11, verse 1, what have you got? The triumphant entry. Just before he marches in, he tells him, you remember last week I said, I believe Mary got it? I think she was the only one. I think she was the only one that understood and with tears and she was crying and she poured that ointment on the Lord. She got it. Even the disciples didn't get it. Don't you miss this. He was going there to die. It was not a secondary plan. Did you hear me? Many, I've even made this mistake early on in my Christianity and said, well, if he went to Jerusalem and the Jews accepted him, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. Wrong. That would make the cross a secondary plan. Well, if they don't accept him, then I guess he'll go to the cross. He had to go to the cross because of Genesis. He was going to the cross as a primary plan. If the Jews did accept him as their Messiah in that way, true, the kingdom would have come in quicker. It would already be here. But regardless of that, he was going to die. And that's what Isaiah 53 talks about. This was no secret. Christ had to die. Why? Or there'd be no salvation. He went to Jerusalem to face the crucifixion, and he told his disciples that. So when he was marching in, that's why he was crying. They were shouting, save us, but they weren't thinking in terms of their soul. They were shouting the king of Israel, but they were thinking in terms of one that would reign over the nations, not even reign over their soul. They were crying for the redeemer of Israel, but they missed the boat regarding the salvation of their souls. God's perspective was that Jesus Christ was going there because the wages of sin is death, and the only one that could pay the death to satisfy a righteous God was one that was holy like him, and the only one that's holy like him is him. And that's who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh. And he went to the cross of Calvary, folks, to pay the penalty and price for sin. And you can shout all you want about Jesus, and you can quote all the scripture you want about Jesus, and you can talk about all the love and all the things he's going to do, but if you don't see the Jesus of the scriptures who died on the cross, you don't have a Savior. And you need to believe on that one. And you need to trust in the God of the Gospels and the God of Scripture who fulfilled all Scripture. In fact, we referred to Zechariah 9.9. I won't turn back. I did put the emphasis on it when I read it. You know what they missed? Listen carefully. In Zechariah 9.9, when it's talking about it right here, behold, the king is coming and so forth, it doesn't give you all the verse there and, and so on. When I went back and read it, here's what it pointed out. Yes, he's king. Two, he's just. They didn't catch it. What does it mean, just? He had to die. Third, it says in that quotation, you look at it on your own, Zechariah 9.9, he's coming to provide salvation. He is the Messiah. He's coming to provide salvation, to restore us to a relationship to Christ, to God. That's the first thing that has to happen. And he's also coming humbly. And that's what he did. It's interesting because Jesus usually walked. He walked. In this case, he rode. And by the way, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but we call it Palm Sunday and, and so forth. Palms were not associated with the Passover, which is about to happen. 
The reason they used palms and so forth at that time, first of all, the date palm was very available in that area, and they pulled down the branches. And what happened was something, this is significant, something happened not too long ago with the Syrians. A guy by the name of Maccabees delivered and won over Jerusalem again for the Jews. And on that occasion, as a sign of triumph, they put down palms. And that's what you've got here. They see it again as a military victory coming. And they put it down. Also, it's a sign of humility. And now you've got the, those that have put down the clothes on the donkey and so forth. But in comes the Messiah. And I won't spend the time, but also Daniel chapter 9, you should mark it down, verses 24 to 26, that's what it's referring to. When it's referring to the coming of the Messiah, specifically, listen, right to the day. It's talking about this event, not his birth. Daniel 9 is referring to when he comes in and officially presents himself as the King of Israel, the Messiah of God, to restore man's sin. And right to the day he fulfilled it. And here's the crowd shouting, and they don't see it. They don't recognize it. Everything goes through the cross. So you've got a frenzy. You've got millions of people, but very few who understood and very few who knew. You can be enthusiastic, you can be emotional, you can be religious, you can even quote scripture, you can read your Bible. That is not what provides salvation. Salvation is provided through the one that Isaiah 53 told us would come and bear the iniquities, the one who would be the sacrifice for sin. And this entry that we have in verses 12 through 16 of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem is a humble Savior, the only Savior, the God of gods who came and offered himself as a sacrifice. In a few days, that'll take place. Why? He who knew no sin became sin for us because there is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. This one, the Savior who gave his life that we might be free. Have you trusted in him? If you're here today and maybe you've had knowledge of Jesus Christ, maybe Bible knowledge of Jesus Christ. These people had Bible knowledge of the Messiah since the beginning of time. And they didn't see who the Savior was. In fact, even Peter, as you know, wanted to prevent him from going to the cross. The disciples wanted to prevent him. Why? They didn't want to see a Savior had to be sacrificed. Without sacrifice, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. We ought to be thankful that God loved us so much that Jesus Christ came and he is the Messiah. And he died on that cross of Calvary and he offers eternal life. The only ones that get life who have life physically are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not according to their terms, but according to God's terms. As the mercy seat, the sacrifice for sin. It's not religion. It's not any church. It's not even your personal emotions but it's the sacrifice of the one true Messiah of God who was sent to die to satisfy the righteousness of God and to deal with the issue of atonement for mankind. Trust in him today and you'll be given eternal life. But fellow believer, those of you who have trusted in Christ, 
It ought to give us an appreciation for the salvation we have. It always goes through the cross, not a secondary plan. That's truly the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God for us that's found in him. But be careful in your Christian life. We who know the scriptures well, that we don't even walk the Christian life based upon a Jesus and the scriptures not rightly divided, and we're referring to a Jesus who's not the Jesus of the Bible. Listen carefully. When you're witnessing, don't go walk up to somebody and say, wouldn't you like to go to heaven? Go up to them and ask them this. Aren't you a sinner? How are you going to pay for that? Deal with why Christ came. No one in their right mind is going to say they don't want to go to heaven if they believe there's one. But there's only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. They need to repent seeing they're coming to one who had to sacrifice himself. Satisfy a righteous and a holy God. Let's close in prayer. Father and God, I thank you for this triumphant entry of Christ. How amazing it is that while he's been anointed for his burial, all kinds of things are coming off and millions of people are screaming and shouting and recognizing him as king and yet their concept of king and their concept of salvation was not the one that he had, not the one that you had, where the Messiah was coming to be a sacrifice. Father, oh, how often mankind uses religion, uses his own thinking to create another Jesus, another God of the Bible. Help us, Father, to be careful to rightly divide the word of God. Even Judas was busy about looking for ways to betray him. His disciples didn't catch it. And Father, we're reminded of the fact that unless you open up our understanding, we don't catch it. It's not our intelligence. It's not even our study. It's the Spirit of God. But thank you and praise you that Jesus Christ came. We thank you that he was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary to satisfy a just and holy God, to restore us to a relationship with you. We thank you for many who have trusted in him in this room. Help us to walk with him. Help us to love him. And I pray that those who have not come to Christ, help them to realize that death is one breath away. Help them to trust in Christ now and not play with this any longer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.